want to be sitting there waiting for somebody to give a sermon and finally realize it was supposed to be him. So. It would be an awkward moment, wouldn't it? Here he is. I made a choice this morning, uh, since it is December 1st, I'd like to kind of ease into Christmas a little bit with my message. I was hoping I wouldn't be pushing too far uh, on the issue, and I get here, and you're into Christmas. This is great. This is great. I one time met and had dinner with a king. It was an unusual situation. It was about 2003. I was in Lagos, Nigeria for the purpose of being, get this, I was the foreign dignitary to uh, speak at the launching of something called the uh, Christian Memorial Hospital. Now, I was invited to encourage the local people to get behind this ministry of the church in Lagos. I was also told that His Royal Highness, the Alota of Ota, that's the king of one of the city-states that makes up Nigeria, had also been invited. But we did not know whether or not he would come. But as the service was unfolding, pretty soon, move it away, okay, okay, how's this? I want you to hear me, but I don't want you to hear me breathing. That's the point. <laughs> okay. So just as the service was going on, all of a sudden we heard sirens, and in came two beautiful BMW motorcycles followed by a powder blue Mercedes limousine, and out stepped the king. And the king was most regal. He was dressed in an azure robe with a brilliant brocade, uh, carrying an ostrich feather scepter, a fez that had uh, a gold crown embroidered around it. And as he walked through the crowd, he just uh, gently moved that scepter and all the people nodded to him and made way for him. He worked his way through the audience that was there and then all of a sudden he came and sat down right next to me. What do you say to a king Hey, dude, it didn't seem like the appropriate response uh, for me. Uh, and he apparently sensed my anxiety. And in a crisp Oxford accent, he said, How do you do, Dr. Boltman? I've been looking forward to meeting you. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and we conversed. To say he's just a normal guy, no, that wouldn't be the way to describe it. But he was personable, he was involved, he was caring. We had a good time together. There was a time when I gave my camera to a friend to take a photo of us. And after that, he picked up that ostrich feather scepter and went like this, and all of a sudden from clear across the field came scurrying the royal photographer to take a picture of us. I'm kind of imagining today that he's probably sitting with royal friends going through his album saying, yes, I, uh, I, I, I had dinner with a young chap, notice the young, a young chap from Illinois. I hear he's a seminary professor. And uh, it was a delightful time. I imagine that's what's happening. Well, actually, 
what did happen was he followed up. Uh, I spoke first, and then he followed up, and he complimented my message, and he even picked up on some of the themes of my message, and his encouraging the people to get behind this Christian hospital program for the community. It was really a singular life experience. It just doesn't happen every day. I met and I had dinner with the king. Now, we Americans have a little bit of difficulty getting our heads around the idea of a king. Our ancestors, uh, over a couple hundred years ago, fought a war to get out from under the control of a king uh, who was giving taxation without representation, and we just uh, didn't like the idea. We hear about a royalty today. When do we hear about royalty? It's not usually for some great honorific uh, event. It's more likely to be something that causes people to snicker or even disdain royalty, Prince Andrew made a contribution to this issue just recently. Uh, we don't tend to regard royalty with any special high esteem. There was a time when the nation of Israel was a genuine theocracy. God was their king. God appointed certain rulers. He called them judges to uh, act out the will of God for the people. This included some rather great people, people like Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Samuel and Deborah and Barak. No, not that Barak, another Barak. Men who exercised the will of God and gave the leadership that the people needed. But the people kept looking, saying, all the other nations around us have kings, and we don't have a king. We want a king just like the other nations. And so after a while, God seemed to say, okay, you want a king, I'll give you a king. You know, I really don't know why God was so tolerant with Israel and gave in to them as he did. But then, I don't know why God is so tolerant with me. But I guess I'm willing to accept it. And God gave them a king. The first king was a man by the name of Saul. He was a tall handsome, impressive man, head and shoulders taller than the other people around. Uh, he was the kind of king you'd expect a fairy tale king to be. But he was also petty, jealous, wishy-washy. He just could not be counted upon to be loyal to what God wanted for the leadership of his people. He was followed up by a young hero and musician, a man by the name of David. Now, David really had everything going for him. He had the honor of the people, and he was said to be a man after God's own heart. 
but he also had a problem with faithfulness to God because the man after God's own heart, if you read through the history when he also became the man after Uriah's own wife, everything began to change. And you watch that family, it's as though they wrote the book on family dysfunction for royalty. You see in that family jealousy, you see competition, you see adultery, you see incest, you see rape, you see the beginnings of civil war right there in the family of King David. The next king, his son Solomon, may have been the most blessed of all the kings. He was a man of amazing wisdom and yet he lacked the apparent ability to be able to implement the wisdom that he could give to everybody else. And when that kingship was over, the nation divided and became two nations, the nation of Judah and the nation of uh, northern kingdom of, of Israel. And for 500 years, the people of God mostly just endured their kings. There were a few bright lights, men like Hezekiah and Uzziah, Names may not come immediately to mind, but these are people who really led the nation back into its leadership position and the faithfulness in the world. But there were the likes of Ahab and others who basically were selfish people who seemed to have no interest in anything except making sure everybody knows I'm king I'm in power, and I can do whatever I want. There came a time when finally even the southern kingdom that had some measure of faithfulness, it collapsed, and for another 500 years, the people endured kings, not over the people of Israel, kings of other nations, who simply used Israel as a kind of investment program for them. And they exploited and humiliated Israel. Kings, kings were vicious lot for them. It's so strange that the people want something like this because kings of other nations, why they dealt with a king in Egypt. He was called a Pharaoh who put them in slave, slavery. And then they dealt with other kings, Nebuchadnezzar, who put them in slavery again. Kings were not a happy experience for them. The people longed for a redeemer king, a king who will come and enable us to really be God's people, a great nation again. As they were longing for a king, sometime shortly before the birth of Christ, the Roman Empire was now in charge of them, and they seemed to say, you want a king? We'll give you a king. And they did. What do you say about the dynasty of the Herods? Here was a family who had willingness to exploit, misuse, abuse the people. They were great 
engineers, they built some great buildings at the cost of the people who had to pay for them, but they were in no way representative of what God's will was for the people. The people still wanted the king of their own, and somehow the pretenders, the pretenders even fed that hope because of their anxiety. The pretender Herod, for example, who did get the word from a visit by some Persian astrologers that there's a new king that is born in Judea. Where can we go to visit him? And he found out where they were going, and he ordered the slaughter of all of the babies in Bethlehem because he'd heard that a king was born not going to take the risk of the competition. You know how that story went. Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, and the uh, baby Jesus was indeed saved. But a king? A king? Who would have guessed that, in fact, in Jesus Christ, the king of glory really was coming in? that all earth was to receive her king. This isn't how we'd imagined it. Who would have guessed that that Bethlehem event was the beginning of the greatest movement ever to impact our world? Who would have guessed? You know, the Apostle John in his gospel kind of lays it out in the gentle way that it comes. It wasn't really done with a big splash. After the uh, incident with the angels singing in the visit of the Magi, which certainly had some local attention, but they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have the uh, Internet, it didn't just get all over the place. Here was a man who was into adulthood before people really began to notice. John starts out explaining that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus, you see, had been from the very beginning. But now we're getting into it, and so as the gospel begins to unfold, he went to his cousin John to be baptized. Now, John, knowing who was coming, could have said, Look, here comes the Lion of Judah. But what he said was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You begin to get a different taste for what this king is going to be like. Just over a little bit into the third chapter, Jesus met with Nicodemus at night. And you remember that he explained that God has sent his uniquely begotten son, his one and only son. You learned that scripture when you were young. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The... A uh, picture is beginning to unfold, but people still aren't understanding it all. There was in the fourth chapter of John that woman who met Jesus, and he really impacted her. And when she went back to her community and said, come out and meet this man, 
Her question was, could this be the Messiah? And on through the gospel, you see Jesus' remarkable, uh, powerful teaching and his astounding, sometimes confounding miracles. But it was left actually for a Roman governor to actually utter the words, Pilate said, so then, you are a king? And the soldiers made fun of his majesty. And try to imagine this. They inscribed the words, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, and then nailed that very title onto the same cross where they were nailing his hands and his feet and crucifying him. It is left for us finally in John's book of Revelation where he notes that all are gathered around and people from everywhere are now seeing Jesus who comes roaring like a lion, riding on a white horse, dying like a lamb, and reigning as king. And the people see him and they say, All glory, honor, and praise to him, the one who reigns forever as our God and our king. We have a king, you see. Let earth receive her king. But what does it mean for us to have a king, Jesus? What does that mean? One of the things we understand about kings is that kings have subjects. We are subjects to him. That implies submission. Do you have any problem with submission? I do. (laughs) I like to do things my way. I like to have things just so this is the way I wanted it. Uh, I don't always get my way. That's pretty frustrating to me. God has done something to help us with that issue of submission. God has called upon us to worship the king. When we come together for worship, it's not just to be entertained. It's not just to see how the uh, musical group is doing today. It's not just to get together and say, you know, we like these people. We collectively in worship are centering ourselves. We're coming together and we are recognizing that we do not have enough all by ourselves, to deal with every life situation. We collectively are submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ, and we are honoring him. He is our Lord and King. And that act of worship, our singing of praise, our offering our prayer, is a way of our honoring him and putting him in the appropriate place in our lives. He is our king. We show that he's our king by the way in which we talk about him. He's not a political candidate. 
He's not asking us to jostle around and catch up slogans and put signs out to say, here's what he is. He's asking us to honor him in such a way that our daily talk reflects the fact that he's actually alive within us. What is most important to me? What's most important to me needs to be what really is most important to our God, our King. Uh, What commandments do we pay special attention to? We are seen to be the children of our King, the subjects of our King, when we love our neighbor as we love ourselves, when we implement that great commandment. You see, We incorporate the values of the king, and when we incorporate those values as our values, then we're really honoring him as king, much more than simply through singing Christmas carols and other hymns that glorify him. We enable Christ to be living through us. When we do that, the kingdom of God is at work right here in our midst. Can a good king really make a difference? It was a little over 10 years ago, my wife and I stood in uh, Wenceslas Square in uh, Prague, Czech Republic. That's a huge, huge square extending Uh, for uh, what we would see several city blocks in every direction. And in the middle of that square is a huge equestrian statue, uh, King Wenceslas on his horse. Now, King Wenceslas, there's that kind of obscure Christmas carol that we really don't sing very much. Oh, good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. Well, what that's all about is that back in the 10th century, there was one king who stood out as different from all the other Bohemian kings. King Wenceslas cared about his people. He actually got out into the midst of his people, people who did not have heat for their homes. He saw to it that it was provided. People who did not have meat to eat, he saw to it that it was provided. He was a genuinely good king in radical contrast to all the other kings who were busy building their castles that Uh, We like to go uh, see nowadays. Well, King Wenceslas stood out in the hearts of those people for a thousand years. And a thousand years later, in Wenceslas Square, underneath that huge statue, one million Czech people gathered for what is referred to as the Velvet Revolution and crying out in a peaceful way, but continuing to cry out for honor and respect and the privilege to exercise themselves as free individuals. And through that, the 50-year reign of communism over the Czech Republic was brought to an end. A good king 
reigned over them still and made a difference. And we have a king. We have a good king. We have a king whose reign is not because of some uh, special act that got him to usurp the throne, but by the will of the very creator himself, he is king. We have a king who wasn't born into a castle with all the royal trappings, but was born in a manger in a stable with the sights and the sounds and the smells of the stable around him. We have a king, a king who did not uh, get noised about in the tabloids, but a king whose birth was announced by a heavenly choir uh, shouting it out to the shepherds on the hillside. We have a king who did not uh, ride about in fancy limousines or in chariots, but rather a king who walked the dusty paths of Palestine. We have a king who did not live in a palace, but who, well, as he was said, the uh, foxes have their holes, the birds of the heaven have their nest, but the Son of Man doesn't even own a home where he can lay his head. We have a king who did not sail on a royal lot, but who calmed royal yacht, get that word, but he calmed the seas from the back of a fishing boat. We have a king who does not feast in royal banquet rooms, but has invited us to a very intimate weekly supper with him. We have a king who does not rule with an iron hand over people, but a king over whom everybody does experience the reign of Christ or through whom everybody experiences the reign of Christ because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have a king, a king whose crown is not of gold and jewels. We have a king whose crown was of thorns that pierced his brow. We have a king whose royal blood is not a source for identifying him as separate from us common people, but whose blood was poured out from the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side, poured out for us. We have a king who was not buried in a pyramid or buried in a cathedral, but one for whom a rock-hewn tomb could not hold him because he is risen. We have a king, a king who is different from every other king that has ever been because we have a king who reigns forever as king of kings and lord of lords. 
We have a king indeed. Let earth receive her king. All hail King Jesus. Do you have him as your king? I'd like to invite you this morning to accept Jesus Christ as your king, not to lord it over you as one to put in total subjection, but as one when you submit yourself to him, he'll take you as his partner, as his brother, and you are a part of his great kingdom. Ladies, gentlemen, we have a king. Let me encourage you, honor him with your life, with your worship. All hail King Jesus. Would you respond as we stand?